God be a gospel-centered people for that ministry. You might encourage him, but more to the point, you might uh, reach out into that uh, needy area of uh, Carolyn Springs and uh, seek to bring people to yourself and to help them grow in maturity. We do commit Jono and the ministry teams uh, to you and pray for their growth in godliness and prayerfulness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, take a seat, Jono, and uh, Laura's going to come up and bring to us the Bible read. Today we are reading from Mark, chapter 15, verse 42. Let's give everybody a few moments. Mark, chapter 15, verse 42. Starting at verse 42. We're afraid. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alright, so I had a, a conversation with a guy recently, young Aussie guy, and he must be the most unique young Aussie guy alive because he was complaining to me about having to take a day off work for Good Friday. He was, he, let me say that again because you guys are a bit rusty. He was, he was a young Australian man who was complaining about having a public holiday given to him. And the reason he was complaining was because he said, you know, why is it that everyone is forced, apart from football players, everyone is forced to take a day off on Good Friday for a fairy tale that some guys made up a couple of thousand years ago. Now, I, I know this guy pretty well. I know that he's no ancient historian. I know he's no theologian. But his objection deserves some kind of response. And so all I want us to do this morning is take this passage that we just heard read in the book of Mark and ask the question, is his criticism valid? Does it hold any water? Is it true that at least for those of us gathered here this morning, that we have been duped by a myth, a fairy tale, a fib. Well, the first thing we need to realise is that Mark, uh, written by John Mark, probably around, as you know, around the 50s, 55 AD. So you're looking at 25 years, 20 to 30 years of time elapsed from the event that he's made up to the writing down of the fairy tale. Now that's a problem for my friend who says that it's just a myth. To put this into perspective, King Arthur, we all know a little bit about King Arthur, said to have ruled over modern day Britain around 500 AD. The first time his name appears on a page anywhere is three to four hundred years after his death. Three to four hundred years, twenty to thirty years. So the document is contemporaneous and it's therefore very easily falsifiable, right? Like if I write down in a book that an earth-shattering event happened in 1990. You know, in 1990, all of a sudden, all the, all the trees turned purple for a day. How many books do I sell? 
not many in the non-fiction section, right? <laughs> and so John Mark, with the aid of the Apostle Peter, is recording history 20 to, 20 to 30 years after the event. And so therefore, it would be very easily falsifiable. Now, let's just think for a second, if we're going to do this, if we're going to make up this myth 20 to 30 years after the fact, there are some very big mistakes that Mark makes in his account. Right. First of all, he records cataclysmic events that were known to all of the public if they were true and if they were false. So, you remember when he is talking about Jesus on the cross, he says on Easter Sunday from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, the sun goes away. He says darkness blankets the land. 12 to 3, no more sun. And 20, 30 years later, if that's not true, someone just puts up their hand, right? And says, uh-uh. And no one else here thinks that either. And then he says, not only did, did it become dark for three hours, he says, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. This great big keep out sign between a holy God and a sinful people. He says that, that 30 feet wide, 60 feet high, 10 centimeters thick curtain was torn from top to bottom. And again, 20, 30 years later, anyone down the temple just says, no, didn't happen. And therefore everything else in your little document is sus as well. Then he goes on, he makes the same mistake again. In our reading, he says, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea was the guy that asked for Jesus' body, was the guy that put Jesus' body in his own publicly recognized tomb. This famous guy named Joseph. If you're going to write a myth, here's a tip, all right, just in case you're, you're going to do this. Don't mention famous people in it. Don't mention famous. Mention no-name people or... Even better, make people up. Don't give this guy a public burial. Say they dropped him in the woods somewhere. It's, it's, it's hard to remember where it was, but it was definitely out there somewhere. But no, a, a, a public figure with a public place of burial. Mark keeps stuffing this myth up. And then who's he got as the first witnesses to his mythical miracle. Remember? First 1 to 4, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices or bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Who has he got as the first witnesses? Women! Don't get women to be the first witnesses. You can't trust women. Everyone knows, right? Everyone knows. You can't trust Women to be your witnesses. If you're going to make up a myth and you're hoping that it takes and you're hoping that it will change the world, then it needs to be believable and the, and the people featured in the myth need to be trustworthy. 
But he gets women to do it. Women didn't have any sway with their words in the first century. Indeed, today, in many Muslim countries, women still don't hold... Their, their testimony doesn't hold any water. I'm pretty sure today in Yemen that the testimony of a woman counts for about 50% of that of a man. So it's, if it's he said, she said, he's winning. doesn't matter what the situation is. doesn't matter what the accusations are. And it was the same in Jesus' day. He gets women to be the first witness. You can just, rem- just imagine, like, he's trying to tell people, yeah, you know that guy Jesus, he actually rose from the dead. And they're like, wow, wow, that's amazing. Who, 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 who can tell us more about this? Well, there's this bunch of women. Ugh. Next. And not just women, like women are down here, but he's got these women. He's got Mary Magdalene, a woman of ill repute, probably a prostitute. Even today, everyone knows prostitutes don't get anywhere in the courtroom. She's a woman that Jesus cast seven demons out of. So not just women, but these women... And then he says, these women go to the tomb. They're so racked with grief, they probably had no sleep, so it's only on the way to the tomb that they realise, oh, we can't even get into this thing. Right? They've gone to all the trouble of buying the spices and made their way to the tomb. And, and I'm told the tombs were like, there was this groove cut in front of them so that the disc-like stone could roll into place very easily, but was very hard to shift. And so they realise... We're not going to be able to do anything even if we get there. But they, they press on and then they see a young man. The other gospel writers identify him as an angel. And the young man, what does he say to them? Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. The problem for my friend who wants to make this a myth is that these people, first century Jews, had no concept of present day Resurrection, present age resurrection, did they? They were looking for the resurrection, the general resurrection on the, the, the day of the Lord at the end of the age. The dead will be raised, but not now. No one's raised from the dead now. You say, what about Lazarus? Well, yeah, Jesus ro- raised him from the dead, but that was what, Reese? I think the word you're looking for is resuscitation. Resuscitation, not resurrection. Resuscitation, yes. Lazarus is dead. He's starting to stink. Jesus calls him forth, gives him life. But sometime later, Lazarus dies again. Just imagine them, they've got him there in the coffin, just <laughs> poking him. But he died. He died. He's, he's, he's in the ground somewhere. He's, I don't know, floating in the universe. No. The Jews had no concept of a present day resurrection. And here's the thing about lies. Though they are false by definition, they always contain concepts that we understand, right? That we're familiar with. I've got two kids. One is three, one is six. They tell me lots of fibs. All the time, fibs. When we're referring to kids, we don't call them lies. We call them fibs because it sounds cuter, right? And they tell me fibs all the time. But none of their fibs feature the concepts of quantum mechanics or string theory, right? Of course they don't. They have no idea. 
They have no concept of these things. And so the problem for my friend is that if he wants to make this a fairy tale, a myth, why does it contain these concepts that, that, that the writers, that the, the brothers Grimm had no concept of? He says, he is risen. He is not here. And then he says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Go and tell them, Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do. He's going to go ahead of you. He's going to meet with you. Now, where are the disciples and Peter at this point? At least the women, these women who are so disparaged in their time, at least they are up and about. They're active. They want to go and honour Jesus' corpse. The men fled, denied Jesus, are cowering in a room somewhere, scared out of their minds. Peter was so adamant in his refusal to stand with Jesus at his greatest point of need that he was calling down curses upon himself. And yet, these cowards, in the space of 40 days or so, go from cowering, blubbing messes to the greatest ministers and missionaries the world has ever known. How do you account for this if it's a fairy tale? You can't account for it if it's a fairy tale. I know our generation is not very good at logic. I think one of the greatest tragedies of our time is that my grandfather was taught logic at school and we're told that we can very happily hold all kinds of irreconcilable views in some kind of tension. But even if you just allow yourself to think logically for a moment, step back a hundred years, this doesn't make sense if it's a myth. What we've seen for the past 2,000 years of human history doesn't make sense if this is a myth. Now, over that time, really from the beginning until now, there have been people, many people, like my friend, some more educated, who have said, we don't like the logical conclusions you're drawing, so we're going to come up with fanciful conclusions that at least throw a bit of doubt on your logical conclusions. And so you've got all kinds of theories about, you know, the body was stolen, Jesus swooned, the disciples made it up. My favourite one, by the way, I've got to get this in, is a book in the ni- from the 1970s, and all the best books are from the 1970s. <laughs> which was titled, I think, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. And this is a legitimate book. This was before The Onion, ba- Babylon Bee, or, right? This is a, a whole book written on paper. And the hypothesis is that Jesus Christ was the name of a magic mushroom and Christianity is the result of a psychedelic trip. <laughs> Some of your lecturers are like, hmm, it's possible. <laughs> the, 
So we've got to spin these fairy tales in order to dismiss something which doesn't read at all like a fairy tale. I love that quote from C.S. Lewis, who studied mythology his whole life. And he said when he came to the Gospels, I have studied mythology my whole life and I see nothing of the myth in these accounts. So, where does this leave us? I hope this leaves us, even just this little talk this morning, leaves us with a greater sense of confidence in the reality of the resurrection. You know, I was so disappointed this past week, during Holy Week, a couple of my friends on Facebook, who I wouldn't call liberal Christians, both said, you know, whether the resurrection is real or metaphorical doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is that he was raised in our hearts, right? Classic liberal theology. It, that's what matters because at the bottom line, that will be what strengthens us to go and love people and whatever. It's like, are you kidding me? I want us, in this room at least, to have great confidence in the reality, in the historicity, in the fact of Jesus' bodily resurrection from death. I heard you say, He is risen indeed. And you said it with more confidence than the person musters who just wants to fit in. Right? So we need to have that confidence. Here's why. I've got no idea how much time I've gone. Reese will just hook me at some stage, right? Here's why. Believing in the reality and the historicity of the resurrection means that after the resurrection, when he met with his disciples in Matthew 28, it means Jesus really did say, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm going to tell you I've had 10 years out of this place now, 10 years in full-time ministry. And I gave one answer to the what's the hardest bit. I could have given 10. And I feel like this vocation has nearly been the death of me on multiple occasions. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 about feeling like he'd received the sentence of death, right? Just feeling so overwhelmed by the weight of the calling, and I've, I've, I know that. And if Jesus didn't really say, I am with you, then I don't think I would be here. I wouldn't be here, but I not, might not be here. There is enough in full-time ministry to drive a man as weak as I am to suicide. And so, over and over and over again, over the last 10 years, I've heard Jesus ringing in my ears, saying with great intimacy and compassion, I am with you. I am with you always. That is something, a promise, that every disciple of Jesus can claim at any time of the day or night. I am with you. Why? Because he is risen. He is risen indeed.
In addition to that, just flick over for a second to Philippians chapter 3. Pretty sure it is. I'm usually more sure of these things, but I've got your lecturers sitting in front of me and this is terrifying. So, (laughs) Philippians 3, I think it's verse 10. Right, yep. He says this, I want to know Christ. Amen? I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participate in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I believe that this reality that we've been talking about, the reality of Jesus' resurrection, the fact that He is bodily ruling and reigning over all things at the right hand of God, that fact is the ground of our persevering power in ministry. When you're at your last ebb and the question which comes frequently, why am I doing this instead of anything else? Or even, let's go outside of ministry, just the Christian life. The Christian life marked by daily dying to yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus, Luke chapter 14. That life, making all of life all about Jesus, In the midst of that life, the power to endure, to persevere and to triumph lies in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Isn't that a great juxtaposition? It's not triumphalism. I can do all things through Christ who who strengthens me. That kind of ministry where the guy's never, ever broken, never struggling. No, it's a triumphant, enduring in suffering. If you want to go out into ministry, whether it's the ministry of full-time motherhood like my wife does, or the ministry of leading a company or the ministry of social justice or the ministry of preaching the gospel, then in order to endure, in order to persevere with power, you need to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word. Your word is truth. I pray this morning that you would be shaping our hearts and minds in the likeness of our Saviour, the risen Lord Jesus. Please give us great confidence in the resurrection so that our ministry, indeed our lives, would be marked by power in the midst of suffering. I pray for these brothers and sisters. I pray that you would send them out as gospel ministers to the praise of your glorious grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.